The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is November 17th, 2022, and on behalf of the team at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to our final lecture of the 22 fall season of the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. My name is Erica Taylor, and I'm a librarian and team lead here at AHEC. We welcome listeners from all over the world on our live stream. For those of you listening live online, remember that you can submit a question for our Q&A at the end of the lecture by typing it into the chat room and we will include them in the discussion. Now it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Kevin Whittle. Dr. Whittle is a Lou Root Chair of Military Studies and a Professor of Military Theory and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College located at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. He earned his PhD in history from Princeton University and served in the U.S. Army for over 28 years. Most recently, he is the recipient of the coveted Gilder Learman Prize for Military History. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Dr. Kevin Weddle. Thank you, Erica. That's a really nice introduction. And thanks everybody for coming out. It's great to see a bunch of uh, old friends out there. That's uh, really nice to see. And uh, especially uh, since tonight is uh, Thursday night football. So I really appreciate the uh, the, the nice uh, audience. Um, even as a, I'm sort of a last minute replacement here, but even even with that, I'm really honored to, uh, to be here. Um, uh, this is such a great lecture series. Uh, uh, I've always been a big fan, and and I'm a huge fan of the Army Heritage and Education Center since I spent so many days, days and days and days here working uh, on the book. So uh, it's a it's a real uh, it's got a real soft spot in my heart for this place. Um, so tonight we're going to discuss uh, the Saratoga campaign. So one of the most pivotal campaigns in American history. Uh, the Saratoga campaign consisted of 10 battles and engagements. It lasted uh, over five months. Uh, it took place over hundreds, probably thousands of square miles of uh, American wilderness. Um, uh, it, it, it was shaped by countless interactions and contingencies, and the personalities involved are as fascinating as any you're, you're ever going to run across. Um, now, the theme of this fall series is historical mindedness in a near-peer competitive environment. So you may be wondering how Saratoga fits into that. And hopefully you'll agree by the end of uh, the, uh, the, uh, our talk here today that uh, Saratoga fits, fits pretty nicely in there. So my book on Saratoga, The Complete Victory, Saratoga and the American Revolution, uh, covers the whole campaign in all of its, uh, at least I hope, all of its political and strategic context. And uh, I tried to really focus on uh, the decision making of the key uh, the key uh, folks, um, uh, the leadership on both sides. I tried to dissect the uh, the strategy, um, and um, of course, you know, just in the 40 some 40 45 minutes uh, that I have tonight, we're only going to be kind of zooming along at wave top level. So hopefully, we can tease out some of the more um, 
kind of drill a little bit deeper during the during the Q and A. So in late um, late August 1777, King George III burst into his wife's chamber, waving a message in the air and exclaiming, "I have beat them! I have beat the Americans!" Now, what was he talking about? He had just received notice that. Lieutenant General John Burgoyne and his army from Canada had just seized Fort Ticonderoga, uh, the great Gibraltar of the North, um, and from the Americans with almost no casualties whatsoever. And so what King George III was sure of when after he got that message was that the strategy that they had put into place the preceding spring, winter and spring, was going exactly according to plan and that he'd finally uh, finish this pesky rebellion uh, with the Americans. Unfortunately, less than two months after the King's impromptu celebration, uh, Burgoyne and his army met with an unprecedented disaster that changed the very character of the American Revolution. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about some of those implications. Now, I'm not going to talk about, you know, how the war started or anything like that, but I do want to at least put the put the war in military context. So very quickly, I'm gonna run down some of the, the key military operations leading up to the Saratoga campaign. So first, of course, the shot heard around the world, Lexington and Concord in April 75. Fort Ticonderoga, we all know the great story of Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold seizing Fort Ticonderoga. Ultimately, General Knox will take those guns and move them to Boston. Um, the Battle of Bunker Hill, Washington takes command um, July of 75 up, up in Boston. The Americans try to take Quebec in one of their many ill-starred uh, uh, efforts to try to seize Canada. Uh, they fail. Uh, Benedict Arnold is also involved in that. Uh, the British try and fail to seize Charleston. They will succeed later on. Uh, the British will evacuate Boston in March of 76. That's what an assignment at Pentagon gets you. You know, you learn all these great PowerPoint tricks. Um, so the British evacuate Boston, and actually for several months there are no British soldiers in, uh, in the former colonies. Um, uh, most people don't realize that, but they will come back uh, with a vengeance, and of course they will, uh, we all know about the, uh, the battles of Long Island and the American retreat uh, out of Manhattan and then across uh, New Jersey, uh, where the American army starts melting away and things are looking pretty bleak. Um, uh, also, the Brits will try to uh, attack uh, America coming down, uh, actually south on Lake Champlain. Uh, they'll be stopped in part with the, uh, the first great naval battle, naval victory uh, for the Americans at the Battle of Valcour Island. Uh, Washington is going to stop the bleeding uh, in December of 76 with the Battle of Trenton, and then he'll follow that up with another victory uh, with the Battle of Princeton. So at the end of, so the Brits now will, will have a problem. At the end of 1776, early 1777, after Trenton and Princeton, they, they realized that they really need a new plan for 1777. Uh, so more on those plans a little bit uh, uh, in, in a couple minutes. Now there's two threads that, and if you get a chance to read my book, there's two threads that weave themselves throughout the whole book. And one of those threads is military strategy, and the other thread is... Um, uh, is leadership. Now, uh, I can see, I think we've got some, some students in here, I uh, hope so. So I'm sure, um, you know, you're, uh, I think you're in the middle of NSPS right now. Um, so you're, you're, you're talking about strategy, you already did twists, I think. 
So you've probably uh, you, you've uh, worked your way through, through some of those uh, strategic uh, issues. I'm going to focus on military strategy. Now, strategy, uh, as I think most of us know, is one of the most misused words uh, in the English language. You hear it all the time. Um, you know, what, uh, what are the Eagles strategy on this play uh, coming up? You know, that sort of thing. Of course, that's, that's wrong. Strategy, it just in the, in the simplest form, is strategy is the calculated application of ways and means to achieve a political or military objective. That sounds really easy. Um, it's not. If, we, if it was easy, we'd be a lot better at it. Um, the British will soon find that uh, they're not all that good at it either in 1777. So um, what are the, the, of course, you have to set your objectives. Uh, these are the key policy objectives, of course, for the Americans, it's independence. For the Brits, return to the rebellion, uh, suppress the rebellion, return to status quo. And here you can see King George III uh, toward the end of 1776 said, you know, there's no way we're going to deal with independence with these guys. Now, the, the key, though, is how do you achieve those, those objectives, right? So if you were to look at, uh, you were to set up an Excel spreadsheet and you were to put all, you know, all the assets of the Brits, all the assets of the Americans, it's pretty clear it's weighted pretty heavily uh, toward the British side. But I think as we all know that um, uh, physical things aren't, uh, aren't necessarily the things that are going to decide the outcome. Moral factors are really important. Of course, Napoleon famously said, the moral is to the physical as three is to one. Uh, and some of those moral factors are things like will and leadership and things like that. And of course, part of that is developing strategy. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the Brits in particular. Uh, now, these are the architects of British military strategy in 1777, how they're going to use their finite military assets to achieve that political objective, which is, of course, uh, uh, destroy the rebellion, return to the status quo. These are the key architects of that British military strategy. Uh, and I'll start uh, clockwise from the top here. King George III, he's going to have uh, a major role in personnel decisions, and also he's going to have his hand in the military strategy formulation in 1777. Uh, this is the commander-in-chief in North America. This is uh, General Sir William Howe with his headquarters in New York City. He's going to have a major role. Uh, Lieutenant General John Burgoyne, who was the second in command up in Canada, he is now in England uh, by uh, early 1777. And finally, Lord George Germain, he's Secretary of, the State for the Secretary of State for the Colonies. So he's the guy responsible for managing the war in North America. Uh, Lord George Germain is a former general. Uh, he fought in the... Um, uh, the Seven Years' War on the continent, uh, most famously in the Battle of Minden. So these are the guys who are going to uh, be the primary architects of British military strategy in 1777. So in early, late 1776, early 1777, both General Howe in, Nor in New York and General Burgoyne uh, in London are going to offer up competing plans for ending the rebellion in 1777. Don't you love this portrait? Uh, he is, a, he's the, this is the consummate, any Cav guys out here? Cav guys? Yeah, he's, doesn't he look like a, he looks like a Cav guy, doesn't he? Uh, and that's what he is. He's a, he's a, um, um, a lifelong cavalryman. Uh, so very audacious, uh, very aggressive guy. Um, also a little pompous and arrogant as well. I'm not saying most Cav guys aren't, but I'm just, yeah. <laughs> 
So this is Bur this is Burgoyne's plan. Uh, Burgoyne uh, is going to offer up this particular plan. It's going to call for a uh, uh, the army in Canada to go down the uh, or go south on the traditional invasion route from um, from Canada, which is Lake Champlain, Lake George, Hudson River Valley, all the way down to Albany. And then he calls for a supporting force to go down the St. Lawrence River into Lake Ontario, and then ultimately down the Mohawk River, also meeting in Albany or near Albany. And then finally, he calls for the main British Army in New York to come up the Hudson River Valley and again meet uh, there at Albany. All three of these, um, these columns converging on Albany. The idea was to split the more, what they thought was the more rebellious New England colonies from the less rebellious middle and southern colonies, and then ultimately con and control the Hudson River Valley and conduct some unspecified military operations into New England. So that is their plan for 1777. So as you can see, I think it's a pretty complex plan, isn't it? Uh, even today, I think it'd be tough to pull off, uh, especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, not let alone in the, in the late 18th century, uh, when you're talking about distance, time, weather, operating only over what is largely wilderness terrain in uh, upstate New York. Um, very, very tough, unforgiving terrain. So, so it's an it's a interesting plan, and it's a complex plan. But it's enthusiastically embraced by both Germain and the king. They really, really like it. Um, but General Howe, the commander-in-chief in North America, and always got to remember that he is the commander-in-chief after all, General Howe, uh, General Sir William Howe, has a different idea. Here's General Howe, and his idea is take Philadelphia. And the idea is to, um, to take Philadelphia, and then he assumes that Washington and the main rebel army will have to defend the nominal capital of uh, the rebellion at Philadelphia, because that's where the Continental Congress is, um, that, he, that Washington's gonna have to defend Philadelphia, and then um, Howe is gonna be able to have a decisive battle in which he'll destroy the American army, destroy Washington and the rebellion. Because by this time, after Trenton and Princeton, Howe has come to the conclusion that the center of gravity of the rebellion is Washington and his army. Uh, and the best way, I, the, the best comparison I can make to this is uh, Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia in the American Civil War. You know, once Lee takes over uh, before the Seven Days Battles, uh, he turns the, the Army of Northern Virginia into the very symbol of the Confederacy. Uh, well, Washington, of course, has done the same thing with the Continental Army. And so Howe recognizes that in, oops, Howe recognizes that in, um, how recognizes that in early 1777, and that's his plan. Now, when Howe first presents his plan, Germain assumes that he'll march overland uh, to Philadelphia, but Howe doesn't want to do that. That means he's going to have to have a secure line of communications back to New York. Um, he's he's uh, suffered uh, throughout the winter from raids uh, by the Americans, and so he thinks that's a that's a bad idea. That's actually what Trenton and Princeton are, after all. They're they're mainly just raids. Uh, and so what he decides to do instead is use the uh, Royal Navy uh, and instead uh, embark his, uh, his army on ships, and then he's going to uh, uh, attack Philadelphia from the south, uh, basically coming up the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, so that's his idea. Uh, now, going by sea is really good in a lot of ways, especially since the Americans don't have a navy. 
but um, timeliness is not one of them, as we'll find out. So these are the two uh, competing plans. The huge challenge for the Brits are how do you reconcile those two plans? You know, you either pick one and go with it, or somehow you coordinate some sort of, of unified strategy uh, for 1777. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, it's uh, Germain's job to do that. One of the big problems with trying to reconcile these strategies and coordinate them uh, is the distance issue. So 3,000 miles away, um, you know, England 3,000 miles away from New York City, you have a key decision maker sitting here in New York City, the commander in chief. You have these other three key decision makers sitting there in England. The problem with that is on a, it's on a good day, it takes six weeks to get a message one way. That's, that's under good conditions. So that means, okay, you send a message to New York City to tell how to do something or to ask a question or whatever, uh, it takes six weeks under good conditions, and it's gonna take at least six weeks to get back under perfect conditions. So that means it's really hard to, to coordinate this strategy. Um, and, and so that's gonna lead to some problems. Um, so it could, it could literally be three months or more uh, between an exchange for, of letters. In North America, there's, there's similar problems. Uh, the distances are pretty significant. So from the St. Lawrence River down to the Saratoga battlefields is almost 200 miles. From the Saratoga battlefields to Philadelphia uh, is almost 300 miles. And of course on land, the, the, a message can only go as fast as a man can ride on a horse. So, so that's gonna be a challenge uh, for both the Brits and the Americans. But for the Brits, uh, coordinating this strategy for 1777 is gonna be a problem. So um, you might already figure out that what happened. And what ends up happening is, uh, Germain is going to approve Burgoyne's plan, but he's also gonna approve Howe's plan. And he tells Howe he says, okay, once you finish in Philadelphia, then you need to go support uh, Burgoyne. The problem is how gets word that he can go ahead and conduct his operation, and only later does he get the word that, oh, by the way, you're supposed to go help Burgoyne. And by the time he gets that, he's at sea heading toward Philadelphia. Uh, and of course, that means it's way too late for him to do anything. Uh, so that's a problem. So instead of having one unified strategy, they've got two utterly uncoordinated strategies. Uh, and, and that's gonna be a major problem. There, you know, there's other issues, uh, we can maybe hit on them in, in Q&A. Um, you know, who's overall in charge? There's no clearly defined, decisive, attainable objective. The closest to that is how trying to get Washington and his army. Um, unexamined assumptions, there are many. And we can talk about that. Um, what happens if their assumptions prove to be incorrect? Um, the biggest problem, again, is there's no overall uh, controlling military strategy. There's two uncoordinated military strategies. So I, I argue in the book that everything that happens, all those 10 battles and engagements, uh, ending with the two major battles of Saratoga, uh, uh, the, the results of the Saratoga campaign, uh, the 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 and result uh, is because of this faulty strategy on the Brits part. Okay, so, um, so what's gonna happen here is uh, just very quickly, 
Um, uh, Burgoyne is going to depart from Canada on the 14th of June, 1777. He's going to arrive at Fort Ticonderoga on the 2nd of July. Again, the objective is to take the fort and then move on to Albany. Uh, that supporting force uh, under Brigadier General Barry St. Leger is going to leave Canada on the 23rd of June. They're going to arrive at the Mohawk River on the 2nd of August. Uh, General Howe will embark his soldiers on transports on the 8th of July, uh, but they don't even set sail till the 23rd of July because they're waiting around for a good wind. That's what you have to do. Those are the issues with going by sea. And due to contrary winds, he doesn't even arrive at the head of the Chesapeake Bay until the 25th of August. So again, time is not, uh, is not on, the, on their side uh, when he decides to go by sea. Washington is commanding the main American army there, uh, who, there in New Jersey. And the uh, army up in the, the Northern American Army is commanded by uh, Major General Philip Schuyler. Okay, here, here's a basic rundown, a comparison of forces at the beginning. Uh, Burgoyne's going to have about 10,000 troops, uh, and there you can see uh, Schuyler's got about 7,000 spread out all over the uh, the northern department. Um, now, Schuyler is an interesting guy. He's, uh, he's from uh, the Albany area. He's a patrician. Uh, he is not particularly well liked, especially by militia. They really don't like him. Uh, the New England governors really don't like him. They don't trust him. He's really good with logistics and things like that, and he's gonna he's gonna play a major role uh, there. Uh, but he's gonna have some real problems uh, during the middle of the uh, Saratoga campaign, trying to get militia to come out and assist. Uh, I've already talked a little bit about John Burgoyne. He uh, he's a career uh, cavalryman. He um, again he's a very um, um, aggressive uh, guy. He's very well liked by his soldiers, which wasn't always the case in the, uh, the late uh, 18th century in the professional British Army, uh, because he really looked after their, uh, uh, their interests. Here you can see, uh, very important here, 500 Native American warriors will be part of John Burgoyne's uh, army. He, he had hoped for over 1,000, uh, but he leaves Canada with only about 500. Uh, the uh, supporting column of 1,800 soldiers uh, many of those will be Native American uh, warriors uh, with uh, Barry St. Leger. So uh, let's take a look at how the campaign played out. Uh, the army, Burgoyne, uh, uh, arrives at Fort Ticonderoga, as I said, on the 2nd of August. And very, very quickly, he's able to maneuver, outmaneuver the American commander uh, at Fort Ticonderoga, and that's uh, Arthur Sinclair. That's a picture of... Uh, Sinclair right there. I am pretty critical. I'm not uh, I'm not a big fan of Arthur Saint Le uh, Arthur Sinclair. I'm pretty critical of him in the uh, in the book. But in a matter of days, uh, Burgoyne is able to outmaneuver Sinclair and convince him uh, that he needs to abandon the fort, and he does again after just a couple days. Uh, so almost without firing a shot, the Brits are able to seize Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, for Ticonderoga, when Burgoyne made his plan, he assumed Ticonderoga would be the toughest, his toughest uh, challenge in the entire campaign. And it turns out to be a breeze, no problem whatsoever. And this is, uh, uh, this is a real surprise. Um, it's also a huge shock to the Americans. Uh, and it's impossible to overstate the, um, uh, the negative impact on the Americans by the loss of Ticonderoga. It, it just devastated morale. Uh, throughout the colonies, um, uh, Washington and Congress are just appalled 
that Sinclair and um, and Schuyler had let that happen. Um, it also fed into Burgoyne's overconfidence in hubris, uh, since he again had believed he had taken that Ticonderoga would be the toughest uh, toughest uh, um, obstacle uh, along the way. Uh, now. Um, in the meantime, Schuyler, uh, it really unnerved Philip Schuyler, the commander of the Northern Department and the commander of the Northern Army, the American Northern Army. Uh, and it almost sent him into a panic. All right, so, um, so Burgoyne has been able to seize Fort Ticonderoga. And then uh, let's talk about the column coming down from um, uh, Lake Ontario. So Barry St. Leger leaves, um, uh, leaves Canada on the 23rd. Uh, and as he approaches um, uh, the head of the Mohawk River, he runs into this fort here, Fort Stanwix. Uh, British intelligence had assured uh, St. Leger that Fort Stanwix had been abandoned. It was in ruins. Uh, unfortunately, when he arrives, unfortunately for him, uh, when he arrives at Fort Stanwix, he finds that uh, uh, instead, it's a repaired fort, and it's um, uh, it's uh, manned by uh, some plucky Americans. And so he quickly realizes that he can't get past Fort Schuyler and so or Fort Stanwix, and so he settles into a siege. Uh, this siege is going to last from the second of August to the twenty second of August. Now the Americans are outnumbered here three to one. Uh, that's even worse odds than that than those odds faced by the Americans at Ticonderoga. So really things didn't look good uh, early on. So on the 6th of August, uh, American uh, militia from the Mohawk River Valley uh, concentrated and they started marching toward Fort Stanwix to hopefully relieve the fort. And they were ambushed along the way uh, by a detachment that St. Leger had sent out consisting mostly of Native American warriors. And the resulting Battle of Oriskany was one of the bloodiest uh, of, of the revolution. In fact, it was probably the bloodiest battle of the American Revolution in terms of percentage of soldiers um, uh, who were engaged. But because there were so many uh, Native American uh, uh, British allies who were killed at that battle and the uh, Native Americans, uh, American Indians couldn't take uh, heavy casualties, it led to the mass desertion of most of St. Leger's uh, Indian allies, which is going to be a problem for him. Um, also, uh, Major General Benedict Arnold will take a detachment from the main army. Uh, he'll march uh, up the Mohawk River, and as he approaches Fort Stanwix, St. Leger realizes that things aren't going to work out, and so he decides to pull out, go all the way back to Canada, uh, and, and hopefully he'll support Burgoyne from there. Uh, uh, Arnold will march to Fort Stanwix, make sure everything's okay, and then he'll march back quickly to join the main army. So this siege of Fort Stanwix is one of the most inspiring stories of the entire campaign. I just covered it in about three minutes. But it's um, uh, it's really an important one, uh, and it, it did a lot for American morale after the loss of Ticonderoga. In fact, John Adams famously said after we lost Ticonderoga, he wrote to his wife and he said, you know, we're never going to hold a post until we shoot a general. Well, after after the Americans hold out here at uh, uh, at Fort Stanwix, he again writes his wife and said, I guess we can uh, hold a post without shooting a general. So um, now uh, things are a little bit different. Things are not going according to plan, are they? The supporting force 
Uh, now this supporting force is no longer uh, heading toward Albany. Uh, and of course, Howe has long gone. He's heading toward, um, uh, he's heading toward Philadelphia. So now let's focus in on this area. Uh, this area is where the rest of the campaign will play out. So here you have the two commanders. Here you have Ticonderoga. This is uh, uh, the southern part of Lake Champlain. This is Lake George. And then uh, this is the Hudson River Valley down heading toward Albany down here. Uh, the main American force right here and Burgoyne up here at Ticonderoga. So as we've already mentioned, he seizes Ticonderoga on the 6th of, um, uh, the 6th of July, uh, 1777. The Americans will, most of the Americans will escape off to the, um, to the east. Um, uh, Burgoyne will send a pursuing force. They'll catch them at a place called Hubberton. Uh, it's the only battle, only Revolutionary War battle fought in the state of uh, Vermont. Um, interesting place to visit, um, but you really want to, if you ever go visit there, you, you need to really want to go there because it takes a while to, to, to get there. But at any rate, um, they, uh, the American rear guard will stop the British pursuit, uh, allow the rest of the Americans to escape. Uh, Burgoyne will then uh, come down uh, Lake Champlain. He'll uh, catch the rest of the Americans escaping south along Lake Champlain. He'll intercept them there at a place called Skeensboro. Um, and at Skeensboro, he will also, he'll destroy all the American ships on Lake Champlain. And he'll also seize a lot of supplies and uh, capture a lot of Americans there at Skeensboro. And the Americans will ultimately the shattered remains of the garrison of Fort Ticonderoga will ultimately make their way all the way to Fort Edward and join uh, the main army under General Schuyler. Now, all of General Schuyler's letters going to Congress and to George Washington, the commander in chief, are filled with just woe is me um, uh, uh, sentiments. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing when you read through it because he is, it sounds like a man who's about to have a nervous breakdown. You know, Burgoyne, there's nothing that can stop Burgoyne. There's nothing we can do. The militia won't come out and help me. You need to send me more troops. I can't do anything with what I have. The morale is horrible. Uh, woe is me, woe is me. Things are going right down the toilet. Um, it's really, really, really bad when you, when you read these letters. Uh, and of course, Washington and Congress are reading these letters and they're going, geez, do we have the right guy up there uh, commanding? Well, as it turns out, Schuyler does a pretty good job actually delaying Burgoyne's advance. Uh, he's gonna stay two weeks at uh, Skeensboro, and then he's gonna move south to Fort Edward ultimately, but it takes him several weeks to get down to Fort Edward. So all the time that Schuyler, uh, General Schuyler is sending these, these depressing messages back, he's actually doing a pretty good job slowing, uh, slowing Burgoyne's advance. He's trading space for time, uh, hope, hoping that, um, you know, Burgoyne's going to run into some problems and that he can get reinforcements uh, into, uh, into the Northern Army. So that's what Schuyler's doing. Uh, but unfortunately, again, that, that uh, his, his, his letters and, uh, uh, and reports going to Congress in Washington uh, do not indicate that he's, he's actually doing a, a halfway decent job. Um, so by early August, uh, well, um, Burgoyne will continue on to Fort Miller. Uh, and then you can see over here by, uh, by early August. Um, by early August, Congress and Washington are fed up with Schuyler's pessimism and they replace him with this guy, uh, Major General Horatio Gates. 
Uh, now, Horatio Gates, um, again, he's, he's an interesting guy. Like Sinclair, he's a former British uh, Army officer. He fought in the French and Indian War. Um, he marries a uh, Canadian girl. Um, after the war, he, uh, he settles in uh, North America, resigns his commission, settles in North America, becomes very Americanized. And so when the war begins, he immediately offers up his services to, uh, uh, to General Washington. They had served together, by the way, uh, in the French and Indian War. So they knew each other. They had a really good relationship early on. That's going to deteriorate. Uh, in fact, it, it will have deteriorated by the time we get to 1777. But Horatio Gates is, uh, is now in charge. Now, by the time Burgoyne gets to Fort Miller, which is where I've got him right here, he is running into huge logistical problems uh, because he has left Canada without enough logistics, both in transport and in supplies. Uh, and maybe during the Q&A, we can, we can tease that out a little bit more. Uh, but that was in part because of some of these assumptions he makes uh, in his plan that turn out not to be the case not to be true. So by the time he gets to Fort Miller, uh, he's really in bad shape. So what he decides to do, uh, he gets word that there are supplies uh, and all sorts of transport, uh, oxen and mules and things like that down at Bennington, Vermont. So he takes a thousand men uh, and he sends them on a mission to go to Bennington, seize these supplies, come back, and then they can continue on to Albany. Uh, unfortunately for them, they are ambushed uh, uh, by predominantly an American militia unit, militia units, and basically destroyed. So he loses a thousand men in a day. Uh, that's a problem when you've only got about a little over 6,000 soldiers to begin with. Uh, so that's a problem. So he loses all these guys uh, on the, um, uh, the 16th of August, um, 1777. So by this time, he has really uh, reached the, the, the Clausewitzian culminating point uh, by this time. Uh, but um, uh, he decides to continue on south. Now, in the meantime, Gates has taken command of the American Northern Army, and he starts edging them north. Uh, and he will continue till he finds good defensive terrain at a place called Bemis Heights. Uh, that, that will dominate both the Hudson River and the road to Albany, and then he'll dig in there. Now, Gates is a very defensive-minded general. He's not super aggressive. He's, he's very defensive-minded. He's also a very, um, he's very popular amongst the militia. Militia guys really like him. The New Englanders really like him. Uh, and he has great respect for the militia, unlike many of his uh, contemporaries. So Gates will dig in. So now Burgoyne has a, uh, you know, he's got a decision to make. Do I continue on or do I fall back at this point? Uh, because I still, I haven't alleviated my logistics problem. I've lost, just lost a thousand men. He decides to push on. He crosses over to the west bank of the Hudson because that's where the road network is to Albany. And he'll continue south uh, toward Albany. He will, uh, and, and so, Finally, on the 19th of September, 1777, the two armies will clash at uh, a place called Freeman's Farm. It'll go down as the Battle of Freeman's Farm. Uh, this will be the first of the two big battles of Saratoga. Uh, the British will uh, hold on to the battlefield, so they'll claim a victory. 
uh, although they, they will have suffered three times the amount of casualties that the Americans suffer. Now, when they fight this battle, the two armies are, are pretty much equal. Both armies are a little bit over 6,000 soldiers uh, when they fight that battle. But the problem is uh, Burgoyne's army is going to get weaker and weaker and weaker, while the American army is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, uh, Burgoyne's army, due to sickness, uh, cat battle casualties, desertions, uh, they're going to grow weaker. And over the course of the next uh, couple weeks, uh, Hundreds and then thousands of militia will show up and reinforce the American army uh, at Bemis Heights. As Burgoyne pondered his options, none of them very good, uh, Lieutenant General Sir Henry Clinton will throw him a lifeline. So he'll dig in there. Uh, and um, so as I want to now do, we'll just hold this in your, your, um, uh, your brain here, and we're going to take a quick aside to talk about leadership. Uh, now that's that other key thread that runs itself through through my book. Um, these are the key, just some of the key British players here. We've already talked about these four. Uh, this is um, uh, General Sir Guy Carlton. He's the commander in chief, British commander in chief in North, uh, excuse me, Canada, uh, and um, Lieutenant General Sir Henry Clinton. He is the British House second in command uh, in New York City. And as I as I as I looked at all these personalities and looked at all these leaders, um, I, you know, my conclusion is the vast majority of the leaders at the regimental command level and below, you know, colonel level and below, are really good on both sides. I mean, these are really good leaders. These are hands-on leaders. These are leaders who are taking care of their soldiers. They're they're you know personally brave. They're leading in combat. They're leading from the front. Uh, it's it's uh, the difference though is at the senior leader level, and frankly, the the Americans just uh, did a little bit better job than the than the Brits did. And of course, the um, the great uh, military historian um, um, Sir Michael Howard once said, "All you have to do is be a little bit better than the enemy." Right? Uh, these are the Americans. Uh, we we've already run into several of these folks: Horatio Gates, Philip Schuyler, Arthur Sinclair. Then, of course, you've got General George Washington, the commander-in-chief, and I'll talk about him in a second. This is the guy who commanded at Fort Stanwix, 26-year-old Colonel Peter Gansabort. This painting was painted 17 years after the siege, so he looks a little older, but a uh, very young guy, does a brilliant job at Fort Stanwix, and then this is Benedict Arnold right there. Um, but the, the thing I want to talk about is really comparing the two commanders-in-chief. So you have the American commander-in-chief, George Washington, and General Howe, the British commander-in-chief. Uh, both of them are dual-hatted as both commander-in-chief and also commanding an army. So they're commander-in-chief and commanding the army. The difference is, at the Saratoga campaign, is Washington acted as a commander-in-chief and Howe did not. Howe acts as an army commander who's focused on the Philadelphia campaign and he doesn't care what else is going on. And unfortunately, when Burgoyne entered New York, he falls under Howe's control, but Howe just basically ignores him. Washington does the exact opposite. Washington is paying close attention to what's going on in the Northern Department. And in fact, uh, very early on, right after Ticonderoga, um, he, um, he is, he's providing outstanding guidance, support, you know, moral support, pats on the back to Schuyler to kind of get him out of his funk and get him going. 
Uh, and the most important thing he does is not send thousands of troops up there to help Schuyler, but he sends leaders up to help Schuyler. Uh, he sends he sends great leaders to to, and I'm I'm sure his intent was put put some steel in Schuyler's backbone. Uh, so what he he sends Major General Benedict Arnold up there, arguably his most dynamic, aggressive combat commander. He sends Major General Benjamin Lincoln. Most folks have never even heard of Benjamin Lincoln, but he was. Uh, very popular amongst the militia. And so Washington understood that Schuyler had problems with militia, but but Lincoln didn't. So he sends Lincoln up there to help out. He sends other uh, GOs. He also sends his most elite force up there, uh, Colonel Daniel Morgan and his riflemen. Think Delta Force, right? Uh, from the 18th, uh, uh, the 18th century, a high demand, low density. Everybody wanted Morgan and his riflemen. Uh, but Washington unselfishly sends those guys up uh, to join the Northern Army. So Washington really, it's a stark contrast in the performance between uh, these two uh, generals, uh, these two commanders in chief. And Washington plays a huge role in the ultimate American success. All right, so how? How, uh, excuse me, uh, Clinton is Howe's second in command. He's been left behind here in New York City with the mission to hold on to that base, that important base of New York City, but also if you can uh, help out Burgoyne if he needs it. Well, Burgoyne had been sending Clinton some messages saying everything's going great, everything's going great, everything's going great. And then all of a sudden on the 21st of September, uh, Clinton receives a shocking note from Burgoyne saying, I'm in deep trouble, you need to come and help. So uh, he'll put together a relief force of about 3,000 soldiers, a couple uh, uh, Royal Navy warships and some transports, and he'll sail up the Hudson River. Um, he really can't get started until the, it takes him a while to get these guys together. Uh, but on the 3rd of uh, October, he'll move up. Uh, he'll make short work of the American fortresses at Forts Montgomery and Forts Clinton, just south of, of West Point. And then he'll continue on uh, they'll burn the town of Kingston, uh, but that's as close as they're going to get because there's just so many militia between uh, this relief force and Burgoyne, and he's never going to get closer than 70 miles to Burgoyne. Uh, so Burgoyne has, uh, has, a, has a major problem. Burgoyne is starting now to cut his rations. He's going to cut his rations three times uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Now, this is a photo I took of uh, the American positions on Bemis Heights. Uh, it's also in the book, but you can see how it dominates the road to Albany. This is basically where the road was, the original road to Albany and, and of course, the Hudson River. So while, while Clinton's feudal rescue attempt is playing out, there's also drama on the American side. Uh, Gates, after the first battle of uh, Saratoga, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, had written an after-action report uh, back to Congress. Uh, and he praised uh, several officers, he praised the soldiers. But he didn't put, he didn't uh, add much praise for the left division of the army that had done most of the fighting. And those guys were under the command of Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold took personal umbrage with this. He had also been, Benedict Arnold was very aggressive, he had also been urging Gates to go out and attack Burgoyne because Burgoyne's weak. Uh, let's go, let's go, let's attack him. But remember, Gates is this very defensive-minded general. So Gates refuses to do it. Uh, and so they, they um, what starts as a shouting match between the two of them will degenerate into a battle of letters over the next several days. Even though their headquarters are half a mile apart, 
These guys will send a series of letters back and forth that can only be described as petty and juvenile. Um, they're actually hilarious when you read through these letters. They're, you know, oh, you know, um, um, I'm not, you are, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it's just, it's just hilarious, actually, if it wasn't so tragic because they're, these two key commanders are, are fighting with each other. Um, fortunately for the American cause, uh, and this is one of those myths of Saratoga, and maybe again, we can cover that in, in Q&A, but uh, fortunately for the American cause, by the time they fight the second battle of Saratoga on the 7th of, uh, of September, they have reconciled. They have, they have, they're at least able to, to, to work with each other by the, second, uh, by the second battle of Saratoga. Now, by this time, Gates's army probably numbered around 11,000. So they've, they've, they've actually increased by 5,000, almost doubled in size because of all the militia coming out uh, to support the army. Finally, uh, Burgoyne, desperate for food and for fodder for his animals, uh, he decides to personally lead a 1,700-man reconnaissance force out of his fortifications to try to find food, forage for food, and then maybe also do a, a reconnaissance to see if maybe they might be able to get around the American left flank. Uh, and so he'll, he'll personally lead this force out. So on the 7th of October, 1777, he will personally lead these guys out of his fortification. Um, they'll arrive and find an unharvested wheat field. So he immediately puts these guys to work harvesting the wheat. Uh, the Americans spot the movement right off the bat because all, almost all of Burgoyne's uh, Native Americans have deserted by this time because they see the writing on the wall. Uh, they've deserted, so now he doesn't have scouts. He doesn't have, he used his, uh, uh, his Native Americans to screen his army from American scouts. Well, now they're gone. So the Americans spot this movement almost immediately. Uh, Gates will send out Morgan's riflemen and also a unit of light infantry, and they'll immediately start causing uh, heavy casualties uh, uh, against this reconnaissance force. Uh, Burgoyne realizes very quickly uh, that he needs to uh, conduct an orderly retreat. Unfortunately for Burgoyne, uh, the, uh, his messenger that he sends to, uh, to go to the different subordinate commanders telling them to fall back is shot and killed. And so the message doesn't get out to everybody. And so they start uh, collapsing. Now, uh, Arnold, who is observing what's going on, rides back to Bemis Heights and he goes up to Burgoyne and an eyewitness said, he rode, or rode up to Gates rather, and an eyewitness said that Arnold, uh, in great excitement, uh, rode his horse up to Gates and said, it's late in the day, but let me have men and we'll have some fun with them before sunset. So Gates uh, sends a brigade uh, plus under Arnold's personal command. Uh, Arnold will take this, uh, this brigade. They'll uh, basically uh, um, uh, totally collapse uh, Burgoyne's force and force them to fall back into their fortifications. You can see there. Um, the Americans will first try to attack the uh, British Light Infantry Readout right up here. Uh, they're unable to uh, get through this particular uh, fortification. But once again, uh, Arnold spots a uh, weakness in the British uh, defenses uh, right between these two fortifications. This is a, a German camp up here and then the British here. And he personally leads them into the German fortification, um, killing the, uh, the German commander. Ar Arnold is, uh, is seriously wounded but the Americans are right on the, uh, the British right flank. And so now there's nothing that 
uh, Burgoyne can do except to order a retreat, which he does. So at the end of this second bloody battle, the Battle of Bemis Heights, which will it'll become come known as the Battle of Bemis Heights, uh, the Americans are right on the British right flank. Uh, Burgoyne orders a retreat, and his exhausted army will trudge north in a cold, driving rain, uh, and they'll only get about eight miles, and they'll be forced to halt at a place called Saratoga, where the Americans are following close behind. And in a matter of a couple days, the Americans have totally surrounded uh, Burgoyne. Now the American army exceeds, probably exceeds 17,000. So 17,000 against less than 6,000 soldiers. After several days of tense negotiations, uh, terms are agreed to. Uh, and although you know Burgoyne had left Canada with over 10,000 men, uh, 15 weeks later, um, he uh, ends up surrendering uh, almost 6,000 soldiers. Uh, at Saratoga. And on the 17th of October, with an American band playing Yankee Doodle, uh, Burgoyne will surrender his army to General Gates, as depicted in the famous uh, uh, Trumbull painting that now hangs in the Capitol Rotunda. So what are the strategic implications of all this? Well, there, there are a bunch of them. Uh, Short-term implications, there's lots of them. I mean, the Brits only have two major field armies in North America. They've just lost one. Uh, American morale up, British morale down. Opposition in Parliament, there is a vocal anti-war opposition in Parliament. They get emboldened, more people uh, uh, become uh, members of the opposition. Now the Brits have to worry about a wider war. Um, they, um, they start to get desperate. They offer Americans favorable terms. In fact, they will offer Americans what would we, we would probably identify as, uh, as Commonwealth status. Basically, everything you want except independence. And the Americans basically say, no, no, don't think so. Not after uh, winning that battle. Uh, two days after the French learned of the American victory on the 4th of uh, December, Louis the 16th uh, reopened up negotiations with the American uh, chief American negotiator in Paris, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and then in a few short weeks after that, on the 6th of February, 1778, uh, they would find a sign, of course, the famous Treaty of Alliance between France and uh, and America. So Saratoga leads directly to what the Brits feared the most, a wider war uh, against another major co uh, continental power. So now they have to worry about things like homeland security. They have to worry about securing their possessions in the West Indies, in the East, in the Mediterranean. Uh, now, now their finite military resources are going to be spread very thin and the American theater actually becomes a secondary theater. Um, and and the, French, the French will be followed by Spain uh, uh, shortly thereafter. So let's circle back real quick. I'm, I'm almost done here. Um, the, for the British, the, the national objectives don't change. They still want to end the rebellion, but they replace basically all of the military uh, commanders, both naval and um, uh, and army uh, commanders in Great Britain. Howe is replaced by his second in command, uh, Lieutenant General, now General, uh, Sir, um, um, Sir Henry Clinton. Uh, Germain keeps his job, strangely enough, uh, and ultimately they'll embark on what becomes known as the Southern strategy uh, for the Brits. For the Americans, uh, Washington will continue his efforts to 
maintain the army uh, as the first uh, uh, component of the strategy. But now, this is Lafayette, by the way, now with the French on their side, uh, the Americans have, of course, a lot more resources. Now, of course, Winston Churchill once famously said that the only thing worse than fighting with an ally is fighting without one. Uh, and the Americans soon uh, learned the truth of that statement because the French are difficult allies. Uh, it takes a while uh, for the French really to, uh, to come to our aid, but ultimately, well, first they do with naval power, uh, which is very welcome. But finally, in 1780, they're gonna land an army in America. Ultimately, that army, of course, will link up with Washington's and will we'll end up, of course, with the de final decisive American victory at Yorktown in October 1781. But quite simply, um, the Americans could never have had a Yorktown without a Saratoga. It didn't have to be Saratoga necessarily, but it had to be a Saratoga, something big that would convince the French to come over on our side. So although the great American victory at Saratoga changed the character of the revolution, um, Saratoga wasn't sufficient to guarantee American victory and, and independence, but I think it was necessary. So there you have it. Uh, the American, uh, the Saratoga campaign, I think, is one of the most fascinating, multifaceted, consequential campaigns in American history, maybe in world history. You know, few other campaigns have had such far-reaching consequences, and I think it was the military campaign that guaranteed American independence. And it was, as one general wrote, uh, the day after the surrender, it was the complete victory. So thank you, and I look forward to your questions. All right. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Weddle. We have a few minutes here for questions. I want to re remind everybody online uh, to go ahead and type in your question in the Q&A section of the chat room. Uh, we will get those queued up for, uh, for Dr. Weddle here. Um, if we want to go ahead and get started with this, we have one right way down here in front to get us started with our, our Q&A. Uh, and then we have a few online ready to go. All right. With regard to his leadership, Washington was pretty busy with Brandywine up to Germantown. How active was he while all these this fighting was going on? Once once the Philadelphia campaign kicks off in earnest, um, he's he's not um, he's not actively supporting the Northern campaign, but he has set the conditions for success with the Northern campaign. For with with his actions in August and early September, he's still. But but still, if you go through Washington's uh, papers during this period, which I did, I went through every letter uh, that he wrote during this period. He's still uh, he's still exchanging letters with uh, uh, with the Northern Department, finding out what's going on, keeping abreast of the situation up there. Yeah, great All question. Right. So we have one uh, one from the uh, from the internet here. This uh, looking at. at some of the comments you made earlier in the in the lecture about uh, how the American leadership just did a little bit better. Uh, so this question goes a little bit deeper on that on the British side. Uh, as the British entered the conflict, what text, books, or other education influenced their military strategic thinking? So where were they coming from as far as, as these leaders' background? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, I, I, I don't know that, that depth of knowledge uh, as far as the British background. However, all the senior officers had served in the, in the, in the Seven Years' War. Many of them had served on the continent, um, and, and the ones that didn't served in North America during the French and Indian War. Um, Burgoyne served on the continent. Um, um, Germain served on the continent. Howe served in North America. 
So the vast majority of them had extensive combat experience, though. Now, one of the problems with Burgoyne is even though he had spent his entire career in the Army uh, or his entire life in the Army up to this point, he had never had independent command. He had always coveted independent command, but had never had independent command. And having as your very first independent command trying to execute this kind of challenging strategy deep in the American wilderness where there's nobody to help you out uh, turned out to be a, an, an issue with him. I think that in part is why he, he failed. Um, you know, there's many, uh, there's many, uh, uh, many, many cooks with their hands in the, you know, in the frying pan over developing uh, uh, the faulty British strategy for 1777. But there's only one guy who was responsible for losing the army, and that was Burgoyne. So, yeah, I'm sorry I can't answer that, that question in, in any depth. All right, we have one back there in the middle. Uh, another question I'm going to ask is more speculation. But if the British had committed to one strategy where they were truly joined, mm -hmm. Where would you have seen that being successful based upon the American ability to really draw many more forces from the militia like they right. were and to concentrate their forces over a relatively quick period? Right. Great, great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, my personal opinion is that Howe had it right. I think Howe was right. Washington and the Army was the center of gravity for the American Revolution. And the only way you were going to win is if you destroyed Washington's army. Somehow how you figured out how to lure him into battle and, and destroy him. He had the right idea. The problem was he just didn't have the combat power to do it. So I think the right strategy was actually when, when Burgoyne presented his strategy in early 1777, he wrote this long memo called uh, Thoughts for Conducting the War on the Side of Canada. That was, so that was his plan. He lays out this plan in this multi-page document. The last, second to last paragraph, he says, oh, and you know, we could also um, take the army in Canada and load it on ships and bring them to New York and then build a big army and then go after Washington. But that's not the best. The best is the one I propose, this three, you know. So basically, he had a throwaway option. You know, we always say never do a throwaway option. You know, you need to give your, your boss quality options. Well, he gave his boss what he said was a throwaway, what he thought was a throwaway option. And actually, I think that throwaway option was the best possible option. Had they done that, had, had, had Clint, or excuse me, um, Howe had a large army, a very large army, not just the 14,000 he had, but, but almost double that, uh, he could have he had a bunch of different options on how to track down and run, run Washington to ground. And I think he may have been able to do that. He may not have been able to do that, but I think that was the best, his best option. But they, it, was, it was a throwaway. There was no way the king and Germain were going to accept that. Uh, and Burgoyne, in an attempt to uh, uh, blame everyone and anyone and not taking any responsibility for it after the disaster, actually will, will write to a friend that, I gave them this other option and they didn't take it. Well, he never wanted them to take it. Um, so yeah, so great question. So I think Howe had the right strategic idea, even though he he did not do a particularly good job as commander in chief. But I think he had the right idea. Hey Kevin, how did Schuyler and, and Gates? 
deal with the different quality of the troops and their training as they uh, join the army? Yeah, um, Gates was really good. He understand he understood how to use militia. Uh, he understood that you weren't going to be able to put him, you know, toe to toe against British and German regulars. So primarily, the American forces, excuse me, at Bemis Heights, uh, the the guys manning the fortifications were primarily the uh, the militia because they were behind fortifications. They were a little bit more uh, reliable then, you know, because they were untrained and they, you know, are poorly trained, uh, partially trained. Uh, whereas his Continental forces were the ones who did the primary combat uh, during both both uh, battles of Saratoga. There were some militia units that also fought uh, with those guys, uh, but not you know right in the in the front line. So so Gates did a good job uh, uh, commanding and controlling those uh, managing that battle. He wasn't you know he wasn't a great combat leader lead from the front kind of guy as he'll prove later on in the war. Uh, in one of the most spectacular retreats in American history at the Battle of Camden. Uh, but, um, but here at, I was about to say Gettysburg, because I was just down at Gettysburg. Here at Saratoga, um, Gates's special, uh, you know, attributes, his belief in the defensive, his, his ability to handle militia well, fit perfectly into the situation that he, he inherited. So it, it didn't require somebody to, to lead a great glorious attack. Didn't require that. He, and, he had, and he had the great you know, Benedict Arnold to, to do that when it was necessary. So he, he was a great manager, just n perhaps not a great combat leader. What happened to Burgoyne after the peace surrendered? Yeah. Uh, Burgoyne, uh, again, um, uh, even after Bennington, uh, he starts to uh, kind of lay the groundwork for his defense. <laughs> and so um, he, uh, after, the, um, uh, after the surrender, he's allowed to write a final after action report and send it back to England. Uh, the Americans allow him to do that. And in that, he primarily blames the Germans, uh, his German troops. Uh, which was utter slander. The Germans fought very well uh, throughout the Saratoga campaign. So he blames the Germans. Uh, he blames General Howe for not coming up the Hudson River to meet him. Uh, he blames Germain uh, for not providing support and not ordering Howe to come up the river. He blames everybody, takes absolutely no responsibility. When he gets home, uh, he is there's a parliamentary um, investigation uh, and some of the most interesting things about the whole Saratoga campaign is reading through all the testimony uh, uh, from that. Uh, and he, uh, he even changes from being a, uh, he, even, the, he was one of the king's favorites. Uh, he's not one of the king's favorites after Saratoga. And he even turns on the king and uh, instead of become, he, he changes from being a Tory to a Whig. Uh, so, you know, an anti, uh, basically anti-administration uh, uh, party. So he, he does all that once he gets back. He, he's, um, he becomes a famous playwright uh, afterwards, actually, and he's buried in Westminster Abbey. So, so things, things turned out okay for him, but, but pretty much dis, in, in disgrace uh, because from the military side. All right, we'll take one more, from, one more from the crowd here, one more online, and then we'll go from Sounds there. good. Yes, sir. Your view on the role that Washington and his intelligence network had in providing uh, 
somewhat of a, an opportunity for Washington to confuse the issue, if you will, for how? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I would argue that how confused the issue more than Washington was able to confuse any issue, and primarily because how had how had the uh, uh, ability to well how had sea power and Washington didn't have sea power. So when Howe embarks his soldiers on the eighth of July and they sail from um, New York Harbor on the twenty third of July, he sails out into the Atlantic, and Washington has no idea where they're going. So Washington's thinking they're they're going to Rhode Island, or they're going to Philadelphia, or they're going to go they're going to turn around and sail up the Hudson to meet Burgoyne. But Washington has no idea. So Washington ends up marching back and forth and back and forth across New Jersey, try, because he's getting these false reports. Oh, he was spotted off, you know, uh, off the entrance to uh, the Delaware River. Oh, he's spotted. He's heading toward Charleston. Oh, he's heading. And so poor Washington is marching the troops left and right. And and he'll write all these letters saying, if we only had sea power, if we only had some sea power, but we don't. Uh, so the mobility that Howe was able to achieve, even though it took a long time, uh, really gave him an advantage um, against Washington. So during the Philadelphia campaign, I guess I would argue that Howe, Howe had, a, had an advantage in terms of of deception uh, um, with uh, with his sea power. The problem, though, of course, is because it took them so long before they were finally able to land at the head of the Chesapeake Bay that he had to. Once he landed his soldiers and their horses, uh, many of the horses had died on the trip. It took them a month. Many of the horses that died and the horses that survived were all skin and bones. He had to wait a couple weeks. Uh, actually, well, several days uh, to kind of get the soldiers and animals recovered before he could actually embark on his campaign. And so because of that, Washington is able to react a little bit better. So, All right. So we have one more question from the uh, from the web uh, Internet here yep. and uh, a little simpler one. The impact of the riflemen. You mentioned uh, the riflemen right. earlier, how they were sought after. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, were they planned for operationally? Uh, was this uh, just a use as needed, but what was the real impact of those riflemen? Yeah, when Washington sends Morgan and his riflemen up to join uh, the Northern Army, uh, he did it primarily because he thought they'd be really good against the Native Americans, the Native American allies who are with Burgoyne. As it turns out, the vast majority of those guys have already deserted by the time the riflemen get up there. So instead, Gates will use them as sort of his vanguard so for both battles of Saratoga, Freeman's Farm and Bemis Heights, the opening American shots will be fired by the riflemen. So he will send those guys out as his, as his you know, covering force, if you will, if we were gonna use a modern term. Um, and he also understood that the riflemen were very vulnerable because if, you, if you've read anything about uh, the, the rifle from the American Revolutionary period, unlike the Civil War period, the rifle in the in the revolutionary period was very very slow. Had a very very slow rate of fire. Uh, it was very laborious to load, and so that meant those riflemen were very vulnerable in between shots. So he, uh, when once once Morgan's riflemen arrive at the Northern Army, Gates is now in command. Uh, Gates raises this elite force, this picked force of light infantry, to work hand in hand with under uh, General, uh, not General. 
uh, Major then Lieutenant Colonel Dearborn, Dearborn, Michigan, it's named after uh, later General Dearborn. So he's a, he's a young major at this point. So uh, this light infantry is formed under Dearborn. They will work together hand in hand. Uh, and those are the two units that will, that will start both battles and will do uh, just uh, outstanding uh, work uh, for the Americans in both battles. All right, ladies and gentlemen, one more big hand for Dr. Little here. Thank you. I'd like to ask uh, Eric to come up and say a few words on behalf of uh, the War College and the Army Heritage and Education Center. Sir, thank you so much for coming. I think that was an absolute excellent lecture. So it is tradition for us to give you a coin. So thank you. So thank you so much. And congratulations, sir, on your award-winning book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.